Now, church, as we turn now our attention to the Word of God that gives us this life, I'd like you, if you have your Bible, to grab it with me and turn to John chapter 15, verses 9 and 12. Two verses today for our text. Today is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and just as we have lit that candle, the theme today is love. So let's begin by reading the two verses of our text, verses 9 and 12. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Verse 12. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You know, honestly, you don't have to know much about Christianity, the Christian faith, to realize that love is absolutely central to Christianity. You know, Jesus himself said that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he said the second greatest commandment is this, to love your neighbor as yourself. As you can see, it's very apparent that love is actually right there at the crux of the Christian faith. Now, according to this verse, the love that Jesus spoke about here is the same love that he lived and that he ultimately modeled to us by dying on the cross for human sin. And this type of love, he says here, is grounded actually in the relationship he had with his father, the love that his father has for him. Therefore, Christians are called, actually, to abide or remain in and continue in God's love. This is not a love that we invent on our own, but it's a love that's grounded in the love that God himself demonstrates to us. You know, 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, we read this about God's love. The Bible says, God is love. Now, this is an incredible statement to be made because it shows, actually, that love is foundational to the very nature of God himself. And even if you and I can't fully articulate what does that mean, the love of God, what do we mean when we say that? We have a sense, and Christians have taken comfort in these words for centuries as they face trials and difficulties, we have a sense of the great assurance and the peace that knowing about the love of God actually brings to us. Even if we can't fully explain what it is. But for us as Christians, this verse and this text, this understanding might be a joy to us. However, to many people in this world who don't know God or don't understand Jesus, these same words mean either nothing or perhaps are kind of puzzling to them. You know, for many of the idea that that God is love or God is loving is incompatible with a world that seems to be filled with suffering and violence and difficulty. You know, 17 years ago, there was a hip-hop group called the Black Eyed Peas that released a hit song called Where is the love? And it goes like this. What's wrong with the world, mama? People living like they ain't got no mamas. Nations dropping bombs. Chemical gases filling lungs of little ones. With the ongoing suffering as the youth die young. And then the chorus. People living, people dying. Children hurt and you hear them crying. Can you practice what you preach? Would you turn the other cheek? Father, 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 help us send some guidance from above because people got me, got me questioning, where is the love? Now, this song is fascinating, and I think I know exactly why it resonates with the culture of our world, even to today. As people 
rightly ask the question, if God is real, if he's present, how can stuff like this actually be? Like, where is the love then? How can this be happening if you are a loving God? And so as we think about that, you realize how important it is to answer this question, what does it mean when we say God is love? And in order to answer this question, to talk about the love of God, I'd like us to trace through the Bible's teaching on this subject of what does it mean that God is a God of love or the love of God is seen in the scriptures. Five things I want to share with you today. Okay, Number one, when we talk about the love of God, we can talk about, one, the love of God for his creation, okay? So the Bible tells us that in the beginning, God made the whole world and everything that's in it in six days. And on each day, he looked at what he had made and he said, it is good. And on the final day, when he was done, Genesis chapter one, verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So in other words, what we learn from the creation story is that God made everything and therefore he owns everything. Right? Like the psalmist says, the cattle on a thousand hills are mine. When God is talking to Job about his suffering, he tells Job, he says, will the wild ox serve you? No, it won't, but it will serve me. In fact, the mighty behemoth, that great beast, and the great leviathan that swims through the sea that no man can tame will answer to no one except to God. The young lions and the ravens also, he says, look to God for their food. The vibrant spring colors that are actually worn by the lilies of the field that spring up every spring, those plants are never naked, but always clothed, Jesus says, in remarkable splendor by a God who cares for even such small details like that. Them shooting out of the ground in all their splendor is a testimony to the love and care that God has for all of his creation. Psalm 145 verse 9 says, The Lord is good to all that he has And he has compassion on all that he has made. Now, if this is true, then how you and I treat and deal with his creation actually does matter in this world. You know, years ago, I remember traveling through a very poor country. And I just finished drinking, you know, a a, a bottle that I had bought from a local convenience store. And I was looking for a garbage can to put it in. And I couldn't find one. And a friend of mine who had been traveling there many times before looked at me and said, here, Sam, I'll come and I'll help you out. And he took the bottle from me, and then he just flung it far away from me, as far as the eye could see. And he said, the world is your garbage can, Sam. And I remember looking at him. I was just stunned by that. I'm like, did you just do that? How could you do that? And then I thought to myself, wait a minute. There's piles of trash everywhere in this slum that I'm living in. Really? What's one more bottle going to make sort of a difference here? Does it actually really matter? Now, now here's the deal. If we believe that creation is from God and that God loves his creation, then it would be very unlike God to show no care for either the creatures that he has made in this world or the environment that he has given us to live in. See, Christians can't just say, well, it's all going to burn anyway, so let's just you know, use it as we please, you know, destroy things. You know, disorder and destructiveness do not represent the God of order and creation who has saved us and called us to be his very own, okay? So these things do matter. But even though God loves his creation, generally speaking, this type of love is not the primary emphasis of the Bible. 
Now, I know that there are some who have tried to make it so. So a number of years ago, I think it was in 2008, HarperCollins actually published what is called the Green Letter Bible. Now, you've heard of the Red Letter Bible, Words of Jesus Red, but you've probably never heard of the Green Letter Bible. And basically, in the Green Letter Bible, it highlights in green all the passages in that Bible that have to do with the earth, care of the earth, plants and trees, and things like that. The promo says this, with over 1,000 references to the earth in the Bible, compared to 490 references to heaven and 530 references to the love, the Bible carries a powerful message for the earth. You know, you have to look at something like that and you go, really? Like, is, is that the emphasis you're going to take? Wow. Like, you have to ask, basically, as, as Ben Myers, this theologian, says, if that's actually true, are we to understand then, just by pure math alone, that the earth is exactly 2.04 times more important than heaven? What about, he notes, for example, the 1,134 references to fire and burning? Perhaps doesn't this warrant an arsonist Bible with verses highlighted in orange whenever God destroys stuff instead? Is that how we calculate things here as to what's important with regards to the Bible and its message? And the answer to that is no. See, because stats can't just tell you what the main point of the Bible is. You can't take a computer and say, well, I found out that creation care is probably the most important thing because of all the verses on planet. No, it's not. You have to read his word and understand what God has to say about himself especially the story of redemption that comes through Jesus Christ alone. Creation, fall, redemption, and restoration achieved only through Jesus Christ's work on the cross. See, God's love of creation is important, but when we make it ultimate, I think what we end up doing is producing what I call a Jurassic Park theology. And Jurassic Park theology, if, you've seen, if you know what that is, that, that's the idea basically that is so common in our world that nature is good all by itself, the planet is fine. The big problem in this world is basically human beings who come here and wreck things. And Jurassic Park theology teaches you that if you mess with nature, what happens is that nature will unleash monsters on you. Whether that's dinosaurs that you can't control or climate change or some sort of other natural disaster, the point is that nature gets the last word and she'll get you at the end of the day if you mess with the planet. See, okay, I get it. Dealing with garbage, pollution, other things like that in this world does matter. But what's more important is dealing with the garbage of sin that lives in human lives, that's piling up in a human soul. And if you don't clean that up, it will ultimately lead you to a place of hell. And that's why it's so important for us as Christians to talk about not only the love of God, generally speaking, for all his creation and the favor he shows, but also, number two, the love of God that he has very specifically for sinners in this world who are lost. John chapter 3, verse 16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, how, according to this verse, does God show that he is a loving God to this entire world? And the answer is this. He shows his love by a very real sacrifice of his son on the cross, coming to live only so that he can die and to save us from our sins and give us the gift of eternal life. See, biblical love isn't just loving your friends who like you and you enjoy partying with and having a good time with. Biblical love is demonstrated by Jesus who came to love those who didn't want him at the party, who didn't like him and in fact wanted to kill him for what he was saying. 
It's about loving those, if you're thinking about what does it mean to be loving, it's about loving those who don't love you. That's how you emulate divine love. Remember years ago, I was watching this viral video of a kid who was talking to his mom as as small children do and said, Mommy, I really like you when you give me cookies. And his mommy, of course, looked at him chuckling and said, Okay, okay, well, I love you. And he said, "Well, Well, I love you too, but just... I don't like you all the time, only when you give me cookies. Now, I remember why that video was so popular and why people chuckled at it is because all of us who are grown-ups understand that in the mind of a little child, a little child lives sort of in their own little world, and they can't grasp the nature of a sacrificial type of love that gives and gives and gives and receives nothing in return. Children don't understand that. They understood that we'd have a lot less fighting on our hands. See, love that is sacrificial, that gives and pours out even for enemies, is divine love, modeled after what God has done. And love that says, you give to me and I give back to you, it's tit for tat, let's sign a contract here, that's not actually love. And this is unfortunately how the way most of us in our world actually operate. You know, Albert Einstein was a famous scientist, but he was also well-known for the terrible relationship that he had with his wife. In fact, when they were living apart and they attempted to reconcile, Albert Einstein wrote out a list of conditions that he expected her to abide by if they were going to have any form of relationship. He wrote this, You will make sure that my clothes and laundry are kept in good order, that I will receive three meals regularly in my room, that my bedroom and study are kept neat, especially that my desk is left for my use only. B, you will renounce all personal relations with me insofar as they are not completely necessary for social reasons. Specifically, you will forego, one, my sitting at home with you, and two, my going out traveling with you. C, you will obey the points in your relations with me. You will, not one, not expect any intimacy from me, nor will you reproach me in any way. Two, you will stop talking to me if I request it. Now, you, 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 you can't help but read something like that and think to yourself, as brilliant of a scientist this is, this guy was clueless when it came to love. Right? It's not love. How many of you signed a contract like that when you got married? See, love is a servant who says, I vow to love you and cherish you, and care for you, for better, and for worse, and so on in that vein. Slavery says, you will serve me, not bug me, be there wherever I want you to be, for better or for worse, you will continue to serve me. You see, that's slavery. That's not servanthood. Big difference. But you know the truth of the matter is, if we're honest about it, isn't this often how you and I as human beings end up sometimes loving each other? Like how many conflicts have grown as a result of, and I hear about this all the time as a pastor, well, if they hadn't done that to me, then uh, I would have done... Okay, so I go, well, so what you're saying to me is what? Like, you wouldn't have treated them so badly, unlovingly, if they weren't so unlovable? Is that what you're saying? Is that the, is that the nature of your love? See, we're not that great as people. We really are not. You know, Jesus told us to forgive our brother. He said, not just seven times, but he said 70 times, seven times. 
Why would he say something like that? And the answer is because that's the whole story of the Old Testament, that God over and over again, 70 times, seven times, will forgive his people as they wandered away into sin, and yet his unfailing love, his steadfast love never ceased, and he kept chasing them down, even though they grieved him and sinned wickedly against him. He chased them. You think you're loving. God has been cheated on throughout all of eternity, and yet he still continues to reach out to people today who don't love him and want to live their own way. You think you're loving, right? This is what love is. 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or atoning sacrifice for our sin. See, this is the kind of love that overwhelms us when God comes for us. But we realize that we're sinners and that we're running away from God like that prodigal son who took all of his father's wealth and said, I'm going to live for myself. I'll spend it how I want. I'm going to use my life, do the things that I want. And then at the end of his rope, when he has nothing left, he runs back to his father in shame. And instead of his father berating him and saying, yeah, you're going to be a slave from now on. You treated me that way. The father opens his arms and says, come home, my child. Let's slaughter, uh, let's slaughter a cow here. Let's have great triple-A steak here. Let's put the best robe on him. My son was dead, but now he is found. I don't care about anything else because my child is home. That's love, brothers and sisters. Reconciliation and forgiveness with God. That's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is what we just celebrated today as we witnessed this baptism. See, this is the primary blessing of the gospel. And we can never talk about it enough. This is what our world needs to hear at Christmas time, the greatest news in the world. And this is the kind of love, divine love, that can get you to love even your enemies, even though they might kill you. I love the story of Dirk Willems, who was a Dutch Protestant Christian who was arrested by the Roman Catholic Church back in the mid-1500s for his beliefs he was actually able to escape from prison and run across a frozen river. Now, the guard who was watching him ended up chasing him, but because the guard hadn't been living on prison rations, he was actually a lot heavier, and he actually broke through the ice and fell into the icy water. Upon hearing his cries, Dirk Willems actually stopped, and he turned back and ran back to the edge of the ice and pulled the guard actually out of the water. And as a result of that, he was subsequently arrested tried, and then burnt at the stake because of his love for his enemy. And friends, you look at that and you go, do you understand this kind of love? What would drive a person to do something like that? Only Jesus Christ, who offers us the hope of an eternal life and gave us an example in reconciling and forgiving enemies so we can also do the same. See, God's love for sinners cannot be underestimated. Yet at the same time, as important as it is, as primary an aspect of the Christian life that this is, a primary aspect of God's love, it's important for us to understand that this monumental aspect of God's love cannot be held in exclusion to the other ways in the Bible that we see the love of God actually manifested. Lest we fall into an error of consumer Christianity that's matches our North American individualistic tendencies. 
That is the idea that the gospel is only about me and God. It's all about my forgiveness of sins, my personal walk, God loving me, and all I need is me and my Bible. Forget everybody else. It's about me, 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 me. That's very dangerous, though, in North America especially, where I meet all sorts of professing Christians who claim that they know God's love, they have forgiveness, and yet, for some reason, their lives don't show it at all whatsoever. This is what brings me to point three. When we want to talk about the love of God, a full-orb view of the love of God needs to also include this. Number three, the love of God for his children. Now, all throughout the Bible, God speaks about this special kind of love that he actually has for his children. Okay? Colossians 3.12, Jude chapter 1, all talk about how we as saints are actually God's beloved It's for his children. Ephesians chapter 1 says that in love, in love, God predestined us for adoption as his children from before the foundation of the world, basically before we had done anything. You know, it's just like you can see how adoptive parents really love the child that they adopt, spending tens of thousands of dollars on them and even paying, maybe selling their house to pay for their medical bills. So also you can see just how much God loves us as he paid our ransom, not with gold and silver, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, his very own son's blood spilled for us. Now that's a costly gift. The gospel may be free to us, but do not think that it was cheap to purchase. It cost the blood of his son. See, it's so critical to understand that if the person sitting next to you also knows Jesus Christ, they are a blood-bought child of God as well. And that God loves them dearly as well. See, if you only love your own salvation, you say, well, I'm a Christian. I just don't love Christians and I don't love the church or whatever. Here's the deal. You actually have a really defective understanding of love. And in fact, the Bible will warn and say that your soul is in danger. 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It's a very serious thing. In fact, John says in the next chapter, 1 John 4.20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, in other words, what he's saying is, you can't tell me something like, Hey, Sam, I really love you, but I just really hate your kids and that wife of yours. But it's nothing personal. Just hate them. See, my family are my beloved. And if you hate them or mistreat them or harm them, you've done it to me as well. It is a personal thing. That's my flesh and blood. That's my family that I serve with my own tears and my sweat and my own blood. How much more so God? In a similar way, Jesus said, right, that if you neglect to feed, clothe, and care for a brother or sister who is in need, guess what? He says, you have neglected to serve me. See, if you really understand that God loves his children and that you are one of them and so is everybody else who believes in him, then you must love the family of God. Now, I get it. Okay, so... Some members in the body, family of God are very easy to love. They're so sweet. They're so great. You love them. You know, everybody loves them. And then there are those in the family of God who are hard to love. And 
You might not think it, but you might be one of them. And yes, God says to love them as well. And sometimes God uses those that are difficult to love to actually discipline you and shape you and to rub off those rough edges on your life to make you to be more like him. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, verse says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. See, do you know what an undisciplined child is? An undisciplined child is an unloved child. Because as painful as it is, the mark of a child of God is that they experience trials, discipline, and difficulty as God molds them and corrects them to make them live in a way that he wants them to live. I know that North American Christians have a hard time often understanding this because many of them are under the impression that life as a Christian is supposed to be sunshine and daisies, you know? But I, I look, I'm like, guys, doesn't your Bible teach you that Jesus said, take up your cross and deny yourself and follow me daily? I mean, the example that he gives is not of a walk in the park, but of a criminal carrying his own cross on a road to his own execution. He says, yeah, I think this is a great picture of the Christian life. You look at that and you go, that's what it is. Don't be surprised that suffering and difficulty comes in your life. I think about athletes. They're not surprised when they're woken up in the morning like, oh, I can't get up to train today, but coach really wants me to get out of bed in order so that I can train and get to the Olympics and win the gold medal. The athletes are not surprised by suffering. They might not like it, but they know it's necessary in order to run for gold. And the same thing is true about the difficulty of the Christian life. We're in the race of life. Is it any wonder that the training and the walk is hard? Yes, there are many times I won't feel like it. I say, God, my strength is not enough. But will you not sustain me and help me to train one more day to follow you and to be obedient to you all the days of my life? In fact, you know, do you know why the Christian life is harder in one sense? It's because it's actually way easier when people are mean to you to shout at them, hate them, divorce them, mistreat them, rather than to be patient, kind, loving, gentle, and to not repay them evil with evil. That is way harder to do. Okay, watching TV on the couch and ignoring people is way easier than actually working with them and bearing with them. The truth of the matter is, you want to grow in patience, kindness, gentleness, and love? That takes work. That doesn't help. That doesn't come from watching Netflix all day. See, sometimes God grows us through circumstances, but sometimes he does grow us through people, whether they are in the family of God or outside the family of God. Whoever they are, whoever God has put there, he has put them there to sharpen you up. You know, it's actually a very toxic thing to the soul, I think, to grow up without a family. You know, due to the one-child policy in China, there's been this very strange phenomenon that has cropped up called the Xiaohuangdi, uh, or Little Emperor Syndrome, as we call it in English. It's what happens when basically one child has the exclusive affection and love and of two parents, four grandparents, and never has to share, is always given the best, and every single whim of theirs is catered to in life. They get every possible comfort. Here's my question. Do you know what happens to a child that has no difficulties, hardships whatsoever, and has every request of theirs answered? Do you know what happens to a child like that? I'll tell you what doesn't happen. They don't actually become more grateful. 
In fact, they become more ungrateful because they think that they are little emperors whom the whole world sort of revolves around. See, Christians, can you understand why God in his love often doesn't give you exactly what you want? Because he doesn't want you to grow up thinking you're a little emperor and that the world revolves around you. See, when children grow up this way, they actually end up destroying their own lives and also the lives of people around them with their incredible selfishness. They don't give life. They end up sucking the lives out of other people. And the same thing is true for God. God loves you too much to let you to grow up in that way. And so that's why he gives you family, to help you walk in the right direction, but also to sharpen you, to round out your tough edges. You see, it's in a family that children actually learn to share, wait their turn, to have joy in serving others. See, it's the challenging family that's actually a gift to them. Same thing is true for us Christians. Sometimes love actually really demands that we say hard things to those that we love in our family or outside of it. Like Jesus speaking in Mark chapter 10 to the rich young ruler was trying to justify himself that he was a good follower of God. The text says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. See, you understand why it's so important to understand that God loves his children? Because that's our calling as Christians too. It's not just about me and God, but it's about me, God, and his body as well, the family we have in Christ. Number four, the love of God for righteousness. Okay. Now, the Bible speaks about God loving righteousness in a number of places. That's right living. Psalm 33 verse 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 11 verse 7 says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. See, being a Christian means that, yes, we'll put to death our sin, and we will strive to live lives of holiness and righteousness and not sin. Like we look at our God and we understand that his eyes, as the Bible says, are too pure to look on evil. And that he died to actually set us free from the power of sin and death. So we cannot live in sin anymore. But we live actually in a new way by the power of the Spirit of God who gave us his very own, who gave us his son and the forgiveness that's there. You know, John, again, speaking in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. See, this is so different from any other religion on the planet. See, this doesn't say, if you obey, then you're loving God. It says, if you love God, then you will obey. There's a big difference here. You can't flip this thing around. It's basic rules of logic. Like, I can't, I can say, if it's raining outside, like it is today, if it's raining outside, then the ground is wet. But I can't say the converse, if it's wet outside, then it must be raining. Actually, the ground could be wet because your dad is washing his car out there. There's multiple reasons why the ground can be wet. But I can tell you this, if it's raining outside, the ground is actually going to be wet. Can't flip it around. See, this is so important to understand when, it, when we're talking about the nature of obedience and the love of God. 
just because somebody obeys and does everything in their religion does not mean they actually love God or the object of their religion. They can actually be doing all the right things while hating it in their heart and finding it to be a burden, right? See, do you know what makes service or doing things not a burden? And the answer to that is found in that verse. It's love. See, that's absolutely critical to understand. Because if you don't understand this, you might actually slip into believing that I just need to work, I just need to do all these things, and then hopefully I've done enough to earn my own salvation. No, this is so dangerous to think. No, no, no. We serve. We do right things. Why? Because of the love that God has put in our hearts. We see Him for who He is. We see what He has done for us. And we say, God, what can I do for you to express this love that you have put inside my heart? How can I serve you? See, the truth is, we do good works out of love for the one who has died for us. And that is why we as Christians don't just talk about obedience and doing righteous things, but we talk about loving righteousness as God loves righteousness. Okay? Last one, number five. The love of God for his own glory. You know, when Jesus prays in John chapter 17, verse 24, he doesn't pray how most of us would think about praying. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me from before the foundation of the world. This is an absolutely remarkable prayer. Jesus doesn't pray, Father, it's my desire that your children would be pain-free, super rich, have a large family, a great Instagram following, a strong athletic body. I mean, those are the things we pray for. But what does he pray for? He says, Father, above all else, what I desire is for them to see my glory. And you have to ask the question, are you serious? That's your overwhelming desire for people to see your glory. How good does your glory have to be for that to be the one prayer of your heart? Imagine this. Imagine a man whose wife has a gift for him. She blindfolds him and leads him up to their bedroom. And then she takes off the blindfold. And he sees there set up a candlelit dinner. His wife dressed in a beautiful evening gown. And she says, it's the anniversary of our first date. You know that time that we went out together? And I just thought I would recreate it for us tonight. I wanted to spend the evening together with you. Now imagine that he looked at her and said, Oh, I was hoping that you were going to give me a PlayStation 5. Wrong answer. Or, ah, oh, I was just hoping you'd give me a neck massage, you know, because it's been a hard week at work. Also the wrong answer. Or worse, oh, I was hoping that you'd be wearing your other dress, the one that used to fit. You remember when we were still dating? Wrong, 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 wrong answer. Now, do you know why? It's insulting because all of those comments reflect a desire for a gift and completely denigrate the giver. 
See, we as people often don't understand what is absolutely important in life. We think that the most important thing is all these gifts, good health, money, good job, career, and all these things. And we say, God, give me, give me, give me all these things. But we push him aside and say, I don't want you. A husband who loves his wife will say, I don't care if there's dinner. I don't care if we don't have a penny in the bank. I don't care, actually, that, that we're so poor and that we're going to foreclose on our mortgage or that today we're not sure how we're going to make ends meet. As long as I have you, you're the joy of my heart, my best of my earthly possessions here, you and my family. As long as we're together, that's all that matters to me. See, that's a way that you honor a person, on this earth at least can't elevate them above God, but that is what honors a person to say, it's not about your gifts. I love the gifts that you give, but what's more important is I love you. And so to be with you, and that is why it's so important for us to understand as Christians, when Jesus is talking about his glory, he is talking about the beauty and the radiance and the magnificence of God himself on display and to be experienced by us in full view when we are in heaven with him. See, we often don't appreciate the beauty of the one who came to save us and gave us his son's own blood for our salvation. We often don't value his kindness in feeding us every single day while we live on this earth. We don't understand how magnificent he must be in order to be able to walk amongst the armies of heaven and command the angel warriors of light. We don't realize just how attractive and desirable and magnificent and ultimately satisfying God has to be. For Moses to have gone up on a mountain and to spend 40 days there with God alone, not eating, not drinking, but sustained by the very presence and the glory of God completely. So powerful and great is the glory of God that even when Moses looked just at his backside, couldn't see his face, it left his face shining. God's glory is such that it could sustain you even when you have no food or drink in your system. Have you ever experienced something like that? You have no idea what God's glory is like. And that little taste of God's glory is what we see in the scriptures. Can you understand then why Jesus would pray, above all things, I want them to have my glory and to be able to see it. See, if I say that I want these COVID-19 restrictions lifted so that all of you can come to church and experience my greatness, my good looks, and bask in my genius and to feel my glory. That would be crazy. Because I'm just a sinful human being that is not worth being made much of. Nobody should be bowing down and worshiping me. But to glory in God and to celebrate Him and to worship Him and to magnify Him, the one who is perfect, brilliant, completely sinless, who is divine love. Nothing else could be better. Nothing else could be more right, you see. So when the Bible repeatedly says that God loves his own glory, he'll share his glory with no other, and that he made people for his own glory, basically the whole world resounds with praise to his glory. God is not crazy because he is worthy to be worshipped. And therefore, God being the greatest being in the universe, for him to withhold himself and to withhold his glory from us would actually be a supreme act of not love 
and hatred instead. Love always gives the best. And if God himself is the best being in the universe, how could he not give us of himself? That's why Jesus prays the way that he does. It's God's love for his own perfection, his own greatness, and his own love that drives him to use everything in this world, even the very bad things. All of that to help us to see the surpassing greatness of his glory and the value of his person. See, the black-eyed peas ask the question, where is the love? But sadly, they can't actually answer that question. But you know what? God can. Why do bad things happen in, a world, in the world that leave us stunned and, you know, begging and feeling like that we have needs? Let me tell you one reason that the Bible says. Amos 4, verses 9 to 11. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with a sword and carried away on horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up in your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. If I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning fire, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. See, do you know what this is saying? This is saying that sometimes pain trial and difficulty in our lives is actually a megaphone that God uses to shout to you to say, look to me. Look to me for your hope and your salvation. Look to me for your ultimate joy. God wants us to actually feast our souls on him. And he will orient everything in this world to have us look at him, to see him as ultimately satisfying and glorious. See, where is the love in the world of suffering that we live in? And the answer is, it's right here, in God. And suffering is a signpost that God uses to point us to Him and our desperate need for Him. And if you think about it, isn't this how many of us came to God, right? When we were needy, we were broken, we were at the end of our rope, we had nothing left. And God didn't throw us out and say, oh, you come to me last after you tried everything else. No, he says, come to me, child. Let me take you in. Let me love you. Rejoice now that my son has been found. We were suffering and in desperation because of our circumstances. And then God was using those to point us to upwards to the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the problem is in this world is everybody looks at the finger and the signpost and says, wow, what a signpost. Wow, what a finger. No. Stop looking at the finger. Look at where the finger is pointing to. You ask the question is, where is the love? Don't look at the suffering. Look at where the suffering points to. Look at the God who calls out to you today and find your joy. Friends, do you see why it's so important that we understand the entire Bible's teaching on what it means when it talks about the love of God? See, when we realize that God loves his creation, we will reflect him then in the way that we care for God's creation and the created order. I remember the story of a believer, like the only one on the reserve that he lived on that was filled with drunkenness and violence. And everybody knew where that native Christian lived because his house was the only one without trash and had a beautiful green lawn and everything was well maintained. See, it's important to understand this. We also need to understand that God's love for his enemies means that we too must also love our enemies, giving up of our own self to see them actually brought to Jesus Christ. 
especially at Christmas time, this is a time to love those who might hate the gospel and hate us for what we believe. We need to understand that God loves his children as well, lest we slip into a Christianity that's me, 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 me. I Christianity, I cloud, iPhone, I Christianity. No, it's about vertical love as well as horizontal love. We need to understand that God loves righteousness as well so that we might find joy in doing what is right and living for our Father who is in heaven. And our love for him is what helps us to do this and it not be burdensome. This is how we can find joy in God and not joy in our sin. And lastly, finally, we need to understand that God loves his own glory, his own immensely and infinitely valuable glory, and that his desire for us to see it and experience it is a supreme act of love. See, friends, love does not begin with us. Love begins with God. God is love. Brothers and sisters, as you think about this, let me ask you, you who have lived as Christians, have you thought about these five kinds of love that are in the Scriptures? Do you model them in your life? Have you let this sink into your soul? Are you a Christian who experiences the love of God in all these five ways and emulates it yourself? Does the love of God really affect the way that you live? Are you a Christian only in name saying, I have forgiveness of my sin, or does the love that you have spill out into all aspects of your life? Those of you who don't believe in Jesus Christ today, and you're listening to this today, let me ask you, do you know the depths of God's love? Do you realize that everything that's been happening in your life right now is not by accident, but it's leading you to Him? Are you still looking at the finger and the signpost, or are you finally taking your eyes and looking upwards to the one who paid it all for you on the cross? your sins. Friends, I would invite you today, if you don't know Jesus Christ, to give your life to him. Consider this, the one who died on the cross for you. There is no greater decision in the world that you can make, no more important decision than to turn your life over to the one who gave it all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm so grateful, God, for your love for us. I want to thank you, Father, for what you have done for us in saving us from our sins, for giving us a beautiful world to live in, and also giving us a church family, O oh God, to love as well. And not only that, O oh God, that you have chosen as well to show us a right way to live and allow us to be agents of righteousness, living in a world, O oh God, that loves to go the wrong way. Father, help us to see and savor your glory about everything else and to know the love of God in our own hearts, O oh God, and to cherish you and to think that being in your presence, O oh God, is far better than anything else in this world. Father, help us to say as the psalmist did, one thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to gaze upon his beauty in his temple. Father, help us to savor you. Help us to experience the full orbitness of the love of God. So Father, it's in your name, O oh God, that we pray and we give thanks. In Jesus' name.